0: Hello, and welcome to Series 2, Episode 4 of We Make the Future, brought to you by Pyton. Here's a taste of what's coming up this
1: episode. New Zealand's got one of the worst extinction rates in the world. A lot of species are becoming extinct. And there's people who are interested in technology who wouldn't normally care about conservation. But when you can actually see how it's applied in a different way, I think that's that's really important. It's easy to collect lots of data. It's hard to process it. Fifty years ago, a conservation person would be walking around with a notebook, with a pencil, and a pair of binoculars. Now, everything is becoming more multidisciplinary.
0: Now drone technology has had a bit of a bad press recently from shutting down airports to being used as weapons but there are good uses too. New Zealand-based scientist Andrew Digby works in conservation and uses drones and several other pieces of technology to help save endangered native birds. Here he is to explain more.
1: Yeah so I'm a scientist for the Department of Conservation in New Zealand and I specialize in two species so the kakapo, which is a endangered flightless parrot and the takahe which is a large rail so like a big moorhen, pretty much both of them are endangered and the kakapo, there's only about 147 left the takahe there's about 300 or so so we work intensively to save those species that's kind of our job what are the threats those species are experiencing? There's a, there's a couple of things. Both almost became extinct. In fact, takahe was thought to be extinct twice. It's the only bird I think that's come back from extinction twice. <laughs> Both were pretty much wiped out by habitat loss and by introduced predators. So particularly things like stoats, cats dogs, those sort of things. Kākāpō are now only found on offshore islands in New Zealand. They don't exist on the mainland anymore. And Taake are found mostly on offshore islands, but some sort of safe sites in mountains on the mainland as well.
0: And how is technology helping you
1: achieve that? Right. Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll, I'll focus on kakapo because we use a lot of technology in the kakapo program. I think we probably use more technology than certainly any other program in New Zealand and probably most programs in the world. And we have a number of ways. It's basically all based around the fact that every single kakapo wears a transmitter. Every Karkapur, 147 of them has got a name. Every single one of them wears a transmitter on its back. So it's like a little backpack, a little gram transmitter Um, and it's a smart transmitter which monitors activity so we can use it to find the carcobor but also we can use it to tell what the carcobor have been doing so it's got a little mercury switch in it and it basically monitors their activity and it sort of 10 minute every 10 minute intervals and so if it transmits that information by a series of vhf coded pulses so we can go out with a telemetry set so like a big aerial and we get a series of coded pulses every 10 minutes which we can basically we write them down and we can decode them and tell us what the activity was but that's that's like the old school method we now have a a newer method of a series of data loggers around our islands every time a car goes near one of these data loggers a uhf signal from the transmitter relays that to the data logger and then we have a data network and so those networks then relay all our data back to the the hut on the island. We have a hut where, where, where we live and then that gets transmitted to the internet. So we have basically a network of all these data loggers and we have different types of data loggers. So we have one type of data logger, which is a mating data logger. It basically sits at high points around the island and it detects, its main reason was to detect matings. And so these transmitters, they detect activity. So they detect things like If a couple mates, actually mates for a long time, It mates for up to an hour. And basically that mate (laughs) is jiggling around a lot when it happens. You might have seen some videos on YouTube when it reaches a certain threshold it switches on a receiver inside the transmitter which detects any females nearby so it can tell who the male has mated with so it logs the female id it logs the time and date obviously it logs the duration of the mating and also a quality score so how likely that was to be a mating and not just a little fight or something like that so we can get all that information And like this morning i've been online i've checked our islands i'm not on our islands at the moment but i can see exactly who mated last night how long they mated for who they mated with that sort of thing so that's really cool
0: that's absolutely um, incredible i mean just to sort of have that data set yeah that, that enables you to i presume then make decisions about where to concentrate your efforts just to kind of why back did you have to capture all the all the birds and then fit these transmitters and and who designed those transmitters and how long is the battery life and just talk to me a little bit about the kind of the tech behind that as well as well as the data right.
1: yeah so the transmitters we do we fit and we actually change them every year so we change the batteries every year and they're made by a company called Surtrack who specialize in sort of wildlife telemetry here in New Zealand. There's a UK sister company to them called Biotrack and they were designed with they've got the software that was designed by a company called Wild Tech in New Zealand who basically design all the activity monitoring software and the activity monitoring is not just for the males we also have a series of we detect nesting when females nest. So if a female nests, her activity drops. And so we can detect that. And so actually every morning I also generate a series of graphs of activity for each karkopor, each female karkopor. And we can see she'll basically be really active when she starts nesting, her activity drops. When she lays an egg, we can see that. So we can see all all that information from her activity. And so that tells us then that we need to go and find that nest, for example. So we know that our activity drops to go find the nest. Because we manage the nests really intensively. Every time there's a nest, we have a tent set up near the nest. We put a camera into the nest. We have an infrared beam across the sensor. We have a proximity sensor at the nest, and that is linked up to our data network. And so back at our hut, we actually can we have a visual display of when a female leaves the nest. When she gets back again, we have a series of alarms set up. If she's been away too long, her egg will get too cold or a chick might be in danger. So we can have an alarm go. And some we also have an alarm for what we call a stranger danger, which is when another caribou turns up near a nest because male cacobo have been known to go into the nest and kill chicks or injure them. So we don't quite understand why, but it's bad for the chicks. And so if that happens, we'll have someone run up to the nest to try to get that male out of there. So we have a lot of technology. And the other thing as well, each cacobo has got its own feeding station, a personal feeding station, because we want to make sure during breeding seasons they're the optimal weight for breeding. We want the males as heavy as we can get them. We want the females heavy enough to breed, but not too heavy because they're too heavy. They have too many male chicks and not right. females. So we keep them on a weight range between 1.5 and 1.8 kilograms. And we do that through these, these smart hoppers. So every feeding station's got a, a lid, which is lockable, and it detects the transmitter. There's a data logger there, which detects the transmitter on the female. So if the white right female comes along, we program it to open for her. But if any other cockable comes along, it locks so they can't get in. And so it logs um, her presence and when she arrives and departs. And we also have scales of these transmitters as well. So when she stands on the platform to feed, um, it logs her weight that's also recorded the data logger and that's transmitted over our data network as well so we kind of we know how much the karkapool weigh and we can sort of control how much they That's a
0: attached. phenomenal amount of technology just describe a karkapool for us describe what they're like
1: their character their, their, how big they are what, what, they, what they're like So they're kind of like nothing else they're big they're always much bigger than people expect them to be so they weigh up to about 4 kilograms so they're quite a big bird they're obviously flightless they're nocturnal and um, they've got a real yeah an, an unusual character they're kind of a bit more like a mammal much more like a mammal than a bird and um, you might sort of say they're a little bit like a, a badger say and rather than rather than a bird they they walk around on the forest floor a lot they also are really good at climbing trees so often you'll see them 20 meters or so up a tree but they can't fly even but they climb they climb very high they've got an unusual smell a really sort of sweet sort of musty smell and just really charismatic there's a lot of difference between individuals they really definitely have personalities which which you really notice and i think that's one of the reasons why people relate to them so well
0: so do they fill that even evolutionary niche left by mammals in other parts of the world I and mean, is that what are they kind of yeah uh, yeah, are pretty
1: they, much so. the the badgers of of New
0: Zealand for one of a better phrase.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Um, they're a browser. They're a herbivore, so they're kind of a little bit different like right. that. But in many many other ways, they're a bit bit like a badger. But they're, they're a are So They sort of form the function that maybe like a deer might fill in other ecosystems.
0: Interesting. On. So how do they climb the trees? I mean, have they got kind of claws
1: on their wings or just? They got, no. They have just got very big claws on their feet, and they use their bill as a bit oh. like a third. So their bill to pull themselves up. And they've got really big wings. They've got their wings are big for a flightless bird, and and they use them to balance. And as you see them walking along on the top of the canopy and the top of the trees, they use those wings a lot to help balance like, themselves, like a tightrope walker. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah.
0: <laughs> How have you had to get to grips with
1: the tech personally? How's that? How's that right. worked? okay so uh, yeah guess first of all actually i i do have a background in astronomy as well i used to be an astronomer so i kind of i've changed careers to become a conservation biologist i've always had a, a bent towards technology and, and gadgets right. and stuff, so that's pretty cool but i mean a, lo- a lot of this technology i mean I've, I've been on the team for five years the team have been using this technology for longer than that and um, so the team has always been invested in, in pushing the boundaries a little bit and trying to understand what we can do and we have a, an electronics team at, at the department of conservation who are really good at coming up with these sorts of gadgets and Ideas and seeing the problems that we have on the ground, and thinking, well, what can we do technology-wise to solve that? Yeah, so I love it. I love the gadgets side of it, um, and I'm always looking at new ways that we can do things. And the drones is, is one
0: is so, one part of that. So,
1: talk to us about the drones so the drones is um, I personally fly a drone I've been sort of doing it regulationally for, for a few years and we've been looking at ways in which we can use them for conservation and Deirdre is our manager and she came up with the idea of, of using it for our artificial insemination work so one of the issues we have with artificial insemination it's it's basically really hard and with the team was successful in 2009 in inseminating two females that's the first time it'd ever been done anywhere in the world on a wild bird species mm-hmm. we haven't been able to do it since there's lots and lots of technical problems and one of the problems is just a sheer logistical problem how do you get the sperm from the male to the female and you need to do it as quickly as possible basically every minute counts because every minute goes by that sperm gets less and less likely to inseminate you know, that it reach the egg so that speed is one thing and we'll be catching a carcobot on an island it might be one side of the island and the female might be the other she might be up a tree she might be up a hole it's actually logistically quite hard to catch the male get the sample get it to the female catch the female so that transport thing is something which we thought we could work on and it might take us maybe an hour and a half to walk from one side to the other and we just we did quite a few tests flying it with a drone and found that you know we could fly that in about five minutes so that saves a lot of time and so we did some in the simulation we did one the other week and we, it probably would have taken us about an hour and a half to walk that across and it took us i think about eight minutes to fly so yeah it's quite a simple application but a quite an effective one
0: is this drone program fairly new then in terms of its approach I and mean, you talked about there hasn't been an ai insemination for uh, since 2009 so we've had 10 years and is it only now that technology is accessible enough cheap enough reliable enough that you can do this or is it or is it a funding thing or just talk to me
1: about that please now i think that's an advance in the technology so we were doing artificial insemination I've been, to, well, I've been helping in 2014 and 2016 i guess i started flying drones a little bit after that and i think in the last two or three years i mean you'll know much more about this than me the drone technology and the price of it has come down incredible amounts over that time. we probably you know the technology and capability to do this was around in 2016 probably but it's only become apparent just how cheap it is and how many applications and be able to do that so we just i just use a just a Mavic Pro, just a you know regular consumer drone that's perfectly um, adequate for what we want to do.
0: Have you had to design a kind of caddy or a kind of containment system or yeah, cooling gels?
1: I mean, just talk to me about how you've hacked it. Well, it's it's very very simple because because it's so quick getting it across. We ha- we decided that we didn't need to cool it flying it across so we didn't have a cooling system so we've basically just volcoed a, a small container on top of the drone pretty much and, <laughs> and we, we've, we've insulated it the thing that we're carrying only weighs probably about two or three grams it's a you know a very small amount so it's really not a problem to put that on the drone at all one one thing that we have to do quite a lot of is we we find the birds and we use these vhf transmitters that they have to track to detect them to, to find them but we often struggle sometimes that they might be in a hole or they might be under a big rock or they might be down a cliff and we can't actually find them, so it might take us quite a long while to get a signal from them. And that's where drones can potentially come in as well because some people have actually started developing a system. There's some people at um, ANU and University in Australia who have developed a system where basically if you have a little bit of height, then you can actually get those signals. It's because there's some sort of t- you know, a hill or a rock or something in a way. So they'll develop a system where you can actually fly a drone up Um, And you pre-program it to say, I want to look for these transmitters. And it will go up, it will get a first fix on them all, and it will self-triangulate. So it will then move to another location, get another fix. And it streams back to a laptop that you have on the ground and basically colors in a map. So this is your bird. It's in this sort of area. And then there's another one here. So it kind of helps you locate them. Another thing that we're also doing at the moment, we're not using drones, but we're using aircraft, is to look at changes in trees over time. So one of the things that is central to what we do is to look for when a certain tree, a tree called dreamy tree, fruits. And that is what drives car. Breeding. So they only ah. on we work on. They only breed when that tree fruits. So we need to be able to predict when that tree is got to fruit. It only does it about every two or three years, and we need to be able to estimate how much fruit is going to be at the time. And one of the things that we're looking at at the moment to monitor that we actually climb the trees, we physically with ten trees on the island that we actually climb a couple of times a year and count the fruit on them. But I think we could do a good aerial survey. So one thing we're doing at the moment is flying plane over the island to looked for um, changes in color, so using multi-spectral imaging to see whether we can detect changes in color of those trees, which would like to tell us when the trees are fruiting or not. It's a work in progress at the moment. We don't know whether it will work or not, but it's working for other species. That's something that we're looking at for a whole range of other species as well. But that would be another really good application to be able to use drones to do multi-spectral imaging. Rather than just climbing 10 trees on an island, which is quite intensive and obviously a little bit dangerous work, we could just fly a drone over. And I would do that regularly on a regular flight path and then to just get those changes and make predictions about what's going to be happening with the tree fruit. What we find is if it's more than about 8% of the tips have fruit on them, then the carcobal will breed so that's kind of our threshold so that's what we're looking for but that's obviously quite an intensive process to climb 20 meters up a tree and to count all these little branch <laughs> tips and that you know, it's a lot of work yeah and it's you know it's kind of not very it's not very representative of the whole island if you're only counting 10 trees or the, you know thousands of trees on the island so but yeah we think maybe there's a potential there that we might, better imaging, um, might be able to do some imaging and which might be give us a much better picture over much much larger scales as well
0: talk to me about the future talk to me about where you think this might lead i mean is Is there a plan to get those breeding populations up to stable or is there a plan to get off the island back onto the mainland or how, how would that work? and how will technology yeah, help so facilitate that I think is also important
1: well technology I think is is critical for this to work like we can't do this without technology one thing that we do with our technology every time we have a breeding season and these birds only breed every two to three years it's quite a rare event every time we do it we step back a little bit more because what we do is incredibly intensive when I joined the team I was blown away by how intensive it was you know we sleep at a nest every single night when the mother gets off we get up we weigh that chicken we weigh that egg and it's really really hands-on and as we get more and more capable, we we can't keep doing that. We need to get a little bit more hands off, but we still need to keep an eye on the birds and monitor them, and that's how where the technology comes in. I think we cannot grow the kakapo conservation program, and we cannot save kakapo. I think without technology, one is necessary for the other. So that's I think where it's really exciting where the, the technology comes in. We want to get kakapo back to the mainland. That's our ultimate goal. We want to become more and more hands off, and we're about to put kakapo into a new site later this year which is an island site but it's a challenging one it's got some predators it's got some stoats on it it's a very difficult site to monitor and so that will rely more on these conservation technology methods that we have it's quite exciting we know we want to get them completely back to mainland we want to not have transmitters on them all that's ultimately our challenge we can't continue to keep putting transmitters on every single individual so it's a real sort of i guess a bit of change of of pace a bit of a different paradigm i suppose of Going from this incredibly intensive model to just each time stepping back a little bit more, a little bit more. And the technology enables us to do that, enables us to monitor more birds more efficiently for less money. So we're spending each time, we spend less and less money per bird. Yeah, so that's kind of our gradual stepping back
0: Brilliant. approach. Could technology help in dealing with the stoat
1: infestation on the new island? I mean, is that an option? Yeah. Yeah, so that's a really big push in New Zealand at the moment. There's something called the Predator Free 2050 campaign, which is that there's this crazy ambitious goal to rid New Zealand mainland of introduced predators by 2050, which is a, it's the unbelievably ambitious goal. But technology is a huge part of that. And so that's getting rats and stoats off mainland New Zealand. Because if we could do that, it solves a huge proportion of New Zealand's conservation problems. New Zealand's got one of the worst extinction rates in the world. A lot of species are becoming extinct. A lot of species have become extinct. If you could get rid of stoats and rats off the mainland, and cats and then that would solve most of those problems so and yeah so technology is being used for that that's really key just in terms of things like trap networks and having remote monitoring of traps you can tell when they're triggered there's a whole range of different technologies being looked at and applied to try and solve that you know that's the other problem as you say it's the pest problem getting rid of those things which stop the native wildlife from thriving and there's people who are interested in technology who wouldn't normally care about conservation. But when you can actually see how it's applied in a different way, I think that's that's really important. That's really cool.
0: That's kind of my next point. So let's let's try and take this back to the classroom in there. Where would you advise high school students to sort of explore this because pi top four has a you know we have a drone we have a, like a, a camera attachment you could put this in a tree and watch a bird's nest you know is it important that kids sort of start out small does does the conservation and tech movement start with you know fit sensors for my cat so i know when it's been feeding i mean how important is it that people
1: get familiar oh, yeah, with it definitely all that sort of thing one thing that we use like quite a lot in conservation is trail cameras and so you know your pi camera is, is sort of a great example of that i would have loved one of those when i was growing up as a kid, I grew up in I grew up in the UK. I would have loved having one of those in our garden to see what was around. It would have been pretty really cool. And and that's you know we use that all the time in conservation. And and um, one thing I, I kind of get a little bit frustrated with in conservation is people put out camera traps, get loads and loads of images, and then process them all manually, go through them all manually. There's some amazing ways that you can deal with that using artificial intelligence obviously and using pattern matching you know algorithms and also actually using citizen science as well there's some really cool platforms like zooniverse for analyzing and processing huge amounts of data um, and then it's the same with acoustic recorders i did quite a lot of work on acoustics too and people put out sound recorders that's a really important part of conservation monitoring it's easy to collect lots of data it's hard to process it so becoming familiar with those tools and those platforms and trying to getting used to what sort of information you get from them and then, then trying to understand how you actually turn that information into something useful like you know where is my cat going or you know what is turning up in my garden and dealing with that information i think is quite it's quite key
0: it's interesting you talk about sort of citizen science how easy would it be for for schools to to sort of lend their
1: brains their resource you know to how how is it going to evolve and where do they go yeah, I think there's huge potential. Just look at Zooniverse. Zooniverse has got a lot of astronomy projects, but it's got lots of other project projects, including conservation, and lots of them are trail camera images from Africa or from wherever. And it's great fun to do. Kids love doing it and it's a really good way to contribute to conservation projects and to learn too and you look through lots of images i love looking at trail camera images you never know what you're going to see and you look at these trail camera images from africa and you might see a lion or a tiger or you know something like that so that's pretty cool so i think that's a really good way to contribute
0: and talk to me finally a
1: little bit about what 2019 holds for you so we've got a very busy time at the moment we've got the biggest kakapo breeding season that's ever happened in in recent times so we're spending lots and lots of time on our islands and two islands in particular managing the breeding season, the season so i'm going out tomorrow to another island for a weekend we'll be just be when we're out on those islands we're spending lots of time at nests at the moment so monitoring chick health at nests we'll be finding some more nests and just kind of dealing with lots of little chicks at the moment and we're actually going to be taking some chicks from the mainland back out there we hand rear some of our birds we'll be taking them back out so quite a lot of work in the in the field and our whole team is we be doing that for the next several months um, until towards the near towards the end of the year the whole breeding season takes about a whole year from start to finish yeah it's quite full on it's great fun
0: yeah, i mean this is what this is what's fascinating about all this stuff is that there are so many jobs in what you've just described from drones yep. to to computer science to photography to spectral stuff you have such a broad skill set and then still have that conservation mindset of like well you know i want to make do something that makes the world a better place not just you know, invent infinite scroll or whatever might be the latest fad. One of the problems with the world today is that how do we get these different disciplines to join up? How do we get someone who might be working in a photographic lab or uh, in the movie industry and have great optical skills to come with the computer science person to the meet with the drone person to meet with a nature biologist person to understand how, you know, how how are these teams
1: formed and how are you guys doing that yeah i think that's that's really key and we don't necessarily have an answer to that i think i think it's really exciting that's happening because 50 years ago a conservation person would be walking around with a notebook and pencil and a pair of binoculars pretty much sort of thing. and now everything and I, I suddenly noticed this in astronomy and i'm noticing in conservation everything is becoming more multidisciplinary and we've got people from different backgrounds and everyone helping and i think that's that's really cool but you're right that's the, the key is the how how do we actually recruit people and find people to help on these problems we often will contact people we one of the things that we really do on our program a lot is we work with lots of external experts and that's you know, we work with not just the technology side, but we work with vets and artificial insemination experts and nutritionists and that sort of thing. And we we normally will sort of you know do a bit of googling and find out who's who's who, and then contact people. But very often we get people coming to us. Mm. And, and that's why sort of this sort of outreach thing is quite important because, you know, we will get people knowing about Calculate, knowing that we have some of these issues and people will write to us and say, hey, I'm, vet or I'm an expert in this. Can, can we help? And I think that's really key. But you're right. Having a, a more sort of standard platform where um, you can actually exchange ideas and exchange expertise and find people who have got the right, the right experiences is, is, is key to this.
0: Brilliant. Good luck with your with your conservation work, and it's fascinating to see the, the, the tech aspects of that really kind of yeah. helping and, and, and delivering on on what, what you're trying to do. Andrew, thank you very much. No problem. Thanks for your time. My thanks to Andrew for that. And as Andrew says, you can start small with this sort of thing. I think some sort of smart bird feeder table in the classroom or playground would be a fantastic project for, for educators to... To, to get involved in and if you've got a class and you're looking for something to do with making and conservation that would be a really great place to start if you do do anything like that please let us know uh, best ways probably via twitter Our handle it get top so you can get in touch there also if you've got anything else you're making that's cool and you want to tell us about it also get in touch via twitter we'd love to hear about some of the stuff you're making in your makerspace or some of the things the kids are working on or anything you've built that's really cool that's all for this episode. I'll see you on the next one.
1: Cheers.